All right, let's go ahead and get started this morning. First of all, I want to thank my wife for bringing me a cup of water. I probably should have needed a cup of coffee instead, but uh, my voice is uh, taking its toll with the, the allergy season, so y'all please bear with me. I feel pretty good, but I don't sound too good. Um, <clears throat> Before we get started this morning, are there any prayer requests or announcements or anything that y'all want to be made known? We are kicking off Missions Month today, and I know y'all seen in the bulletin about Missions Month, and I know uh, Giff and Simba have worked hard to uh, put this month together, and there's a lot of good things I think that are in the works for us this month to emphasize and concentrate and focus on our uh, goal as in missions. I know one thing they have done, they print off two different uh, reports up here. One is on the Bahama Missions Report. If you all remember that trip that the college took, I'm not sure everybody got a copy of that report, but it's up here. So if you want to come get it in between services and uh, be able to uh, read on that. And then over here is the, uh, the, the India mission report they put together from their trip to India. And as I say that, Ricky Gutam walks in the back. It's good to see you, brother. And, uh, but they went over and visited India. Uh, Ricky took them around and uh, took good, very good care of them, I heard. So that's good. And, uh, but there's some good reading there if you want to read about our work in India. And uh, as you all know, this last year, we took on a work called the Gardner Fund, which is a fund that was set up in honor of Brother, G Brother Gardner. I can't remember his first name. Albert Gardner. That's right, Albert Gardner. And Brother Gardner was very involved in India work. And so this fund was set up uh, kind of in his name and his honor to uh, help support preachers in India. And so you'll see... A lot of that, uh, the trip from India, were visiting those preachers and trying to check on those works, those new, those new things that we kind of took oversight of here at Dalreda. So I encourage you to get a copy of those reports. And uh, there's also a box up here, and I'll pull some out of the uh, Chamala Missions report. And uh, I think we've got some in the foyers, but just so y'all see those, I'm gonna put them up here too. We'll move them before services. But if you want to grab one of those. Uh, Brother Hal and Mary Ferguson are with us today as well, and uh, they of course are. The stateside coordinators for the uh, Chamala mission work, very good work over in Tanzania, Africa. So I uh, encourage you to get a copy of that latest report. There's a monthly report put out every month. You can get on the email list for that as well. All right, I see. Figured I'd do a little talk and I'd like the trickle effect occur, and I have. Let's start off with a word of prayer before we begin class. Heavenly Father, we are so incredibly thankful for all that you are and all that you've given to us. And God, we're thankful for this time on the first day of the week that we can gather together as your family, that we can be together and open up your word, study from it, and try to learn something that we can apply to our lives and challenge us in our Christian lives. We are thankful for your church, especially the, the congregation here at Dalreda that is involved in so many different things. God, please bless us as a congregation and individually as members of your church and help us to all do what we can to pitch in and to grow together, both spiritually and physically in number, but help us more than anything to, to encourage one another as we are waiting for your son to come back again. God, we are thankful for the support that we have because of your church. We're thankful for 
the encouragement that we can have on a weekly basis by being a part of your congregation. Please bless the elders as they oversee it. Help them to continue to make wise choices to lead this congregation in the path of righteousness. And God, be with us as members as we diligently work and that we pitch in to do what we can to support those things which have been directed by the elders and those good works that have been set forth, that we might make a, an impact not only in our community, but in our state and in our country and even around the world. God, most of all, we're thankful for Jesus and we're thankful for his sacrifice on the cross for our sins. And it's through his name that we offer this prayer. Amen. We uh, left off last week, and I'm going to do this last slide of the, uh, the final study of uh, Satan. The, uh, as we th th think about the enemy of the camp, and as we concluded our lessons last week on uh, the enemy of the camp, I really wanted to, to end with this question here, is can we conquer this enemy? Because when you think about the, the overwhelming temptations that kind of encumber us, those things which confront us on every hand, sometimes we kind of ask ourselves, is can we get through this? Are we able to endure it? Are we able to uh, ultimately conquer Satan? He seems to, to get us on every side and every angle that we have. I think some of us get encumbered with um, the idea of discouragement sometimes. And I believe that is used against us and, and making us think that we, we don't have uh, a real shot at victory. But if you look at the scriptures, it's really the direct, exact opposite, the direct contradiction of that, because... What we're, what we're told in the scriptures is that when we're joined with God, when we're a part of him and all that he is, that Satan and all those things which may try to, to surround us and influence us won't make such a difference, won't make such a big impact on our lives. James chapter 4 verse 7, as you see on the screen, says, Submit there, therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, I think interestingly enough, it doesn't mean he will always be away from you. I don't think that that means that Satan is never going to come back again if you are uh, submitting to God and being a part of uh, God and his purposes and, and those principles that he has. Because you can look in different ways that even, and even Jesus himself dealt with Satan on more than one occasion. We know the temptations of Christ in the wilderness, right? You can read it in Matthew 4, I believe, and maybe over in Luke chapter 4 around those times those passages of Scripture, talking about the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. And at the end of it, of course, it says that, that Satan departed from him for a season or until a more opportune time would arise. And we really can see maybe not the direct impact of Satan later on in Jesus' life, but I think you can see how, how Jesus struggled and how Jesus was suffering, especially toward the end of his life, right? I believe Satan may have left him for a season, but he looked for those opportune times to maybe come back and attack him later on, just like he does with us. Uh, we submit to God. We will understand that Satan will, uh, the devil will flee from us, but it won't be a permanent fleeing. I believe he's going to look for those opportune times to come back. But what we can really understand is that with the mechanics of how Satan works is that uh, we are able to still resist him and stop him from doing those things which he purposes to do. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. 
And we finally see the idea in Matthew chapter 4, which I've already alluded to, the idea that, that Christ was able to defeat the temptations of Satan, and so can we. Look at the example that we see there of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 4 when he endured those three different temptations in the wilderness. And what we see more than anything is that we have the ability to make the choices to turn against Satan, to turn aside those uh, temptations, to turn aside from falling prey to those things that he wants to do to us, that he seeks to devour us, but we're able to, to shut his mouth. How? Well, we look to God. Again, if you look in Matthew chapter 4 and the example that we have of Jesus spurning the temptations of, of, the, of the devil, what you see is Jesus did so by turning to God. Every time Jesus opened his mouth, what did he utter? Words of God, words of Scripture that God had inspired to make sure that those things would properly be able to combat the devil and to make it where he will not prevail. So when we look and when we stand firm with regard to God's word, when we're able to, to uh, focus on those things, submitting ourselves to God and those purposes, we're able to conquer and put aside Satan. Wow, that was a short class. Good, good, good class, y'all. Um, someone must have leaned on the buzzer. We can be assured the answer to the question is, can we conquer him? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Read the book of Revelation if you ever want to know how the story ends. I'm one of those very inquisitive guys. You ask my wife, it's one of my faults probably, is that I ask a lot of questions and I want to know what's going on, whether it really involves me or not. Um, some people call that nosy. I like to call it inquisitive. Um, but when you, when you think about that, you're, you're, those kind of people always want to know the answer, right? They always kind of want to know what's going on. And with respect to our spiritual lives, some of you may be that way as well. Some of you may be asking ourselves this question, can we conquer this enemy? And the, the point of revelation is the story has already been told. The outcome has been revealed to us. And in the end, we get to choose which side of that outcome we want to be a part of because we know how it's going to end. You know, it's much like a book. If you flip to the back, as any an inquisitive person might, and I really didn't do that, to be quite honest with you. I like the story to unfold. But some people flip to the back, right? They read the last five or ten pages of the book to see how the story ends. I've heard people, that's before they buy a book, they want to see how the story ends. And I'm thinking, that kind of defeats the purpose, doesn't it? But... Some people like that. So you want to know how the story ends with regard to Christians. It's this. If you are inquisitive, if you are curious as to know how things end for Christianity, read the book of Revelation. Not for, the, I mean, not for all those illustrious uh, examples or illustrations that you see there. Uh, those all go to one single point, and that's that there is victory in Christ Jesus. Pure and simple. The, the revelation there and on this wonderful imagery, the wonderful uh, illustrations that are revealed in the book of Revelation to John, uh, talk about one single fact. And that's the fact that in the end, there will be victory. The victory will be the, with those who are on God's side. So we can know, we can conquer this enemy. We are able to defeat him. We are able to turn aside his wiles, his strategic examples, the ways that he tries to get to us. And like Jesus uh, told us, and as God has revealed to us, is that we are able to flee from him. We are able to hold fast to God. And by doing that, Satan will flee from us. That door of opportunity will always be open for us to escape and to remove ourselves from temptation. 
And all we've got to do is walk through it. Uh, in our fight, we've been assured that there is a, a path of escape. Uh, all we've got to do is follow that path. And we know in the end, if we put on that uh, armor, if we fight against Satan with all of our might, if we fight alongside of our God and underneath his command as our commander-in-chief, we will have one assured end of the war. And that will be victory. Any comments or questions before I move on? I want to get into the next lesson this morning uh, as we think about those who are along with us on the battlefield. Yes. I think it's interesting that, that you're right, Walt. You can, you, it's an individual fight and struggle. I can't fight Monica's battles for her, unfortunately. Now, there are some things that I can do to help, I believe, along the way as her husband or as her friend, as someone who loves her very much. But in the end, we're all fighting our individual battles against God, much like Jesus was by himself during the wilderness temptations. I mean, it's up to Jesus. It was up to him alone to have that. Now, I think we all come into play as those uh, comrades on the battlefield, so to speak, right? That we can do the encouragement. We can be there and support them. I think that's why attendance in church services is so very important. Uh, it's not just that we worship God. That's important too. Don't get me wrong. But the byproduct of that focus and that intentional actions of ourselves of, of gathering and meeting together brings about a support group and a support system that cannot be rivaled on this earth. Uh, you're right, Walt said that Satan's going to be around until the end of the earth. And he's right. That's why he's called the prince of the earth. That's why God has given him this as his uh, ability and his, he confined him to the earth. And so he'll be around as long as earth is here. Um, but what we know assuredly, though, is that he does not have all the power. And I hope that we've been able to kind of see that in this lesson. Yeah. Mm. That's good. I mean, we've got to make the choice. And if we are choosing to enjoy those passing pleasures, those temptations, then we're not going to be able to defeat them because we're with them. We're, we're a part of them. Um, and that's, that's exactly right. You cannot defeat them if you're enjoying them. That's good. Right, let's, let's flip to the other side. We've, we've been talking about Satan talking about the things that are kind of against us as we are in the battlefield of our spiritual war. Think about those who are on the battlefield alongside with us if we're choosing to, to fight alongside with God. And those are, I labeled this lesson, of course, being messengers on the battlefield. Uh, a lot of us look and consider and think about angels. And I think it's a very intriguing study. In fact, if anybody wants to study further, I've got a great book, and there's no way I can go through a whole book, but this is a great book here, uh, Sister Wynell Maine. Uh, she is a sister who, uh, I'm not, she's from Smyrna, Georgia. I'm not sure that uh, how old this book is, to be quite honest with you. But uh, she did a great study. It's a great book. Uh, I encourage you, it's just uh, called An Investigation of Angels. And uh, you can spend a whole quarter studying what she's done. And this is a study. And it was propelled, uh, the study from her uh, was propelled, if you read the kind of introduction here, is that some comments that were made in the line of the grocery store. Uh, when you think about the, the comments that people make about angels and the, and the comments that people make about spiritual things just haphazardly sometimes, especially those of the denominational world, 
those uh, that have kind of fallen prey to some of the fallacies that are out there regarding angels and the spiritual beings. I, I see it a lot of times during Christmas time, and we've had a lot of conversations with our daughters about angels, especially during Christmas time, because it's a, just an opportune time to do it, right? And people like the idea of decorating with angels, and I'm not saying anybody's wrong with decorating with angels. I'm going to make that very clear. You like angels, good. Um, but what I think we need to do is make sure that we have proper understanding and teaching about them and really what angels are. It's, it's a very interesting study whenever you get into it, and there's no way we're going to be able to get through it uh, with regard to today or probably next week as we get into this study of angels and we think about what the scriptures have to say about it. But what I, I hope I'm able to do is convey to you some truths and some things that you find in God's Word spur you to study a little bit more on your own. Again, that's a great book if you want to study about angels. Uh, she really looks at it from a biblical perspective, trying to debunk some of the, the, the things that have been put forth by religious fanatics in this world and uh, historians who have tried to argue certain things and, and I believe that are not biblically supported. And so it's important for us to kind of look at the Bible as our text as we think about this. Um, first, I want to look at uh, angels really as the words for angels. Um, and there are really two words that you think about, and, and I am not a linguist, and I'm not going to put GIF on the spot to come up here and give us a dissertation on the Hebrew and the Greek words for angel. I'll do a very impartial job, and he can correct me later if I'm wrong. But the word angel is actually a transliteration of the Greek word, angelos. And angelos is the word that's used in the New Testament for angels. And then it's also then that word angels is what we translate the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, which was malach or something like that. Uh, malach, is that pretty good? Yeah. I'm not a Hebrew person at all. Um, but that Hebrew word that is used in the Old Testament for that we see translated as angels. What's interesting of both of these words is that nowhere in the definition of these words are they referred to as a spiritual or heavenly being. Uh, the, the basic definition, in fact, the word angelos in the, the Greek uh, is the one who is a messenger or someone who brings tidings, brings news, brings information. Uh, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is, is used for uh, someone to dispatch as a deputy or a messenger. So again, this idea of messenger is what rings true with both of the intrinsic definitions for these words that are used. Uh, which would be, by the way, why I called messengers on the battlefield, not angels on the battlefield, uh, or angels in the outfield as the movie is, I guess. Um, but we're talking about messengers on the battlefield because when you look at the very essence of these words, these heavenly beings, these spiritual beings, uh, were not and, and are not, I argue to say, beings that go around with wings, and halos on their head, and those kind of things that we see pictured and portrayed around the world today. In fact, when you kind of dig into what an angel is, or what a, the, these heavenly messengers are in the New Testament and the Old Testament, that outright uh, picture does not come into play, typically. Now, there's a couple of, of instances about the cherubim and the seraphim, which I want to get into, uh, which, as a spoiler alert, cherubim and seraphim are never called angels either. So I think it's important for us to understand that those kind of depictions of the cherubs or the seraphs in the Old Testament scriptures uh, are never called angels, never called these uh, the angelos or the malach. That's not what they're called. There's a different word for those beings that were created by God uh, for specific reasons. We'll get into that later. 
But when we think about angels as a, a traditional or a conceptual general discussion, it really is not uh, biblical for us to think about them in the ways that we often do. Um, what we need to look at and, and how they've been able to translate. By the way, these words, especially angelos in the New Testament, it's used in, in instances where the word angel is not translated. Well, how do we know whether to translate it, translate it as angel or messenger in the New Testament? Well, you can get in that word study and discussion all you want to. The bottom line is you look at the context to see usually how that word is translated, whether it's translated as messenger or whether it's translated as angel uh, with our English language. What would really be an accurate explanation or translation would be that every time you see the, uh, the word angelos, you could just translate it as being messenger. And imagine the kind of uh, interesting discussions you would have then there, right? Because you'd have a messenger in one situation who may not be a heavenly being, but then later someone called the exact same thing messenger who would be possibly a heavenly being. And so, But the, the point and purpose of that is that word in and of itself does not dictate or connotate necessarily a heavenly host or a heavenly being, a spiritual being. Uh, what has dictated whether or not it's been translated angel in our New Testament text or Old Testament text would be its context as to see whether or not it would be referring to someone who would not be of this ethereal world, uh, this physical world. Uh, it would be somebody of more of a spiritual origin. So that's just kind of the, the basic intro that I want to kind of lay as a foundation as we kind of move forward talking about angels, talking about these spiritual beings that are on the battlefield with us because they are. They're embroiled in this fight with us when Paul is talking to the Ephesians to be cognizant about those that are spiritual beings, those that are that we're fighting against principalities and, and those kind of things that we're fighting against. We can also translate and kind of indicate in our minds that we're not fighting alone. We're not fighting alone. We're fighting together with other Christians. We're fighting with God, as we've already talked about as our commander-in-chief. And also, in an additional sense, there are messengers, there are these angelic beings that are also there on the battlefield fighting against Satan, fighting against those schemes that he has developed for us and to try to, to pull us down. But they're things that we don't always see. There's things that, that we may not always comprehend and understand. And again, as we get deeper into this kind of thought process and, and contemplating the, the spiritual versus the physical, we've got to understand that there are some things that have not been revealed and more than likely will never be revealed to us as we are here on this earth. But there is an element, there's an element to our fight and to our battle where in fact these heavenly beings are right there alongside with us. Uh, Hebrews talks about them ministering to the saints, ministering and, and being there for those who are God's people. And you see examples throughout the Old Testament and I think even in the New Testament possibly of how angels may act and work and be in, in a part of this battle. Uh, I don't want to get into guardian angels just yet. I may do that as a side note and after this lesson because I think it's important to discuss that. Uh, it's a concept that a lot of people struggle with whether or not we all have our guardian angels in this world. It's a good study to think about. But what I want to think about before we jump off into this study is I just want to lay this basic foundation here is that when you see the word angel, you really in your mind should replace it in your mind with the word messenger. And that will give you a much clearer maybe idea and concept as to what this, in, this being does. Because in every instance, every instance where an angel is involved in the scripture, 
He is sent by God to perform or to do or to say something to convey a message to someone else that God wants to convey that message to. So quite literally, they are God's heavenly messengers. And so in our minds, we've got to put out that side, that, that picture, that, that image of the winged being fluttering around with a halo on his head because that's not what the Scriptures portray it as. And if we want to follow after the Scriptures, we want to make sure we have a clear understanding as to what, in fact, is uh, the duty, the role, the characteristics of angels uh, as they are involved in this world. So who are the angels? First of all, I want to start off by thinking about the, some of the, the basic just concepts of angels. First of all, they are created by God. Uh, angels did not come to be, uh, or just not always be, they came to be by God. They were created. They're part of God's creation. You can look in, in multiple different passages, and I put Colossians 1.16 up here, where uh, Paul, of course, is talking to the, the brethren at Colossae, and he says, uh, Therefore by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him, and for him. And of course, that's the involvement of God, of Christ, who is God, involved in the creation of all things. So there's only one eternal being. That one eternal being would be God. God is the only one who's eternal. I don't know how many different ways to say the same thing. I want to make sure and make that point to you. Because what the scriptures indicate to us is that angels and everything else that's seen and everything else that's unseen. The invisible or visible have been created by God. There's several other passages that you think about. And, of course, we see over in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 1 talking about that all the creation was, was very good. But look at Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 6. A couple of scriptures here that I just want to point out uh, with regard to the uh, angels and, and their um, creation, their involvement. Ezra chapter 9 verse 6 Says you alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth with all that is in it, the seas and all that's in them. You give life to all them, and the heavenly host bow down, bows down before you. Psalm one forty eight. Psalm one forty eight. Verses two and five. Psalm 148, 2 and 5. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. And then down, verse 5. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. A couple of verses there. There's a couple more we could mention. I don't think there's a need to necessarily this morning. One verse would be enough. But what we see in the scriptures is that God created all the heavenly beings, including, in this case, those that we would call angels. Those that are the heavenly hosts that you see uh, referred to there. In fact, there's a lot of different words, not just angels, that are used for these heavenly beings. I guess I shouldn't, really, shouldn't just run over that fact as well. There's some other references in the scriptures that talk about, call them heavenly hosts, call them mighty ones, or call them holy ones, heavenly beings, or sons of God. You see those phrases used time at different times and different points by different writers uh, to refer to these uh, heavenly beings uh, that we would usually call as angels. And so what we know for sure is that they were created by God. And second, they're not physical. Now, I need to, I 
probably should have put an asterisk there to some extent. Because usually when we think of not physical, we think of things we can't see, touch, smell, you know, all the five senses, right? Well, angels are kind of different with regard to that because you, there are instances, and we have multiple biblical examples we'll get into and talk about, where angels actually have been seen. Angels have been seen. Uh, I don't believe, and I was trying to find last night, any instance where someone touched an angel. Um, what was that? Was that a show, Touched by an Angel? I think it was, isn't it? Anyway, so I, I don't know if there's any biblical reference of being touched by an angel, except you might argue Isaiah. We get in Isaiah chapter 6, although the angel did not actually touch Isaiah. What the scripture says that he used a coal, right? And the coal is actually what touched Isaiah. So you could probably get a little bit hazy there if you want to get argumentative about whether or not the, the angel technically touched him or not. So can you touch an angel? I don't know. Um, I'm not sure. And y'all correct me if y'all know of an instance that I maybe missed. But I cannot recall a time whenever a, a human in, in the scriptures talked about touching an angel or an angel actually touching a person. This is true. That's a good point. Yeah. There was no touching in that, but they did actually partake of food. So that could be the idea of what, what Nell mentioned is the idea when Abraham, we'll get to Sodom and Gomorrah in a little bit, but the idea when uh, they came to Abraham and told them about the damnation of Sodom and Gomorrah, that he welcomed them in, I believe, and cooked for them, uh, or Sarah cooked for them, probably the wife cooked really, but uh, they cooked a meal for the angels, entertained them, and so I guess you could say they ate. So again, not physical, I guess I need to put a little, a little asterisk there, because there's really a sense in the scriptures here by these heavenly beings are able to be somewhat, um, they're able to be seen, but maybe there's some kind of a manifesting ability that they would have to be able to take on physical form, because that's what it seems to appear, right? Oh, I know one, Jacob, Jacob, thank you, all right, huh? Thank you, yes. The idea of Jacob wrestling was, yeah, that's right, he was, so I take that back, okay. That one missed my mind last night. Okay, so Jacob. Jacob's probably the example of actually touching an angel or a messenger of God. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so there is an example of them being physical. Now, so that's why this asterisk really should be, I guess, on this for sure, is because there seems to be a way that they manifest themselves in a physical form when that occasion is necessitated. Uh, when God needs them to be in that form, they're able to. So that's a very interesting consideration when you think about these messengers of God and the fact that they are spiritual beings, that's their very essence. I mean, they're talking about being the host of the heaven, that kind of thing. So they are, have this very spiritual composition. But in, in themselves of being able to be spiritually composed, they also have the ability to take on the form of, of, of man and be recognized as such. Okay. Oh, thank you. Okay. Angel touched Peter. So you could say you could be touched by an angel then. All right, so... All right, I'm glad y'all pointed that out. My brain was tired last night. So, all right, so there are some times, again, that they, they can be physical. Uh, so I guess saying not physical is not, I don't think they were made physically. They were made spiritually. They were spiritual beings. But they are, there are multiple examples of them being either appearing physical in form or actually having some type of physical substance about them because you can't touch somebody, obviously, if you're not physical. Uh, you wouldn't be able to wrestle with somebody if you weren't physical. I mean, that would be kind of a funny wrestling match, wouldn't it? I mean, uh, you know, can't wrestle air. I mean, you would win every time, right? So 
there had to be some physical form, but they weren't created physically. Maybe that's the way I need to rephrase this on the slide. They weren't physical with regard to their creation. That was not their sole purpose. On the other hand, of course, as humans, we are physical. And so we are very different beings than those heavenly beings would be with regard to the way that we were created. Scriptures indicate that angels are not married. And so I thought this was an intriguing point that I wanted to point out to you. Uh, and you see this in Luke chapter 20, Matthew chapter 22. Uh, both these passages of scriptures are the commenting about kind of how we would be after death. And so Jesus himself is talking about the fact that we would be like angels, which are not given or are married. They're not given to marriage. They're not given to one another like we are uh, here on this earth. So the argument's usually that the angels would not experience that type of marriage or those kind of physical unions uh, that would be, uh, in, I guess, in the heavenly realm. You wouldn't have that. And of course, you can, I think you see reasoning why. There's not a need. There's not a cause for that uh, on the spiritual level. Uh, the reason why man needs woman, the reason why a man needs a wife, is because we have a physical need, and it's not good for us to be alone. I'm not just talking about physical as in a sexual need, but I'm talking about the idea of a physical loneliness kind of a need or the need to be completed physically by that person. Uh, and so there's also the argument need for procreation as well, uh, that the, the sole reason for marriage, which is very interesting when you think about uh, the functioning of marriage, what would be one of the sole functionings for marriage? Well, of course, we see it as a union of two to support, jointly support and supply the needs of one another. That's why I believe Eve is called Adam's helpmate, because there was a need for a helper there in his life. But you also see the, the scriptures talking about the idea of, of, of man and woman, two becoming one flesh, and that reasoning being by, by having children to go forth and multiply uh, with regard to a purpose behind that union between man and woman. Uh, it's, by the way, one of the arguments we made in the state of Alabama in our filings against homosexual marriages with the United States Supreme Court is the idea that when you look at the purpose and the, the reason behind marriage, the reason is for procreation. You can't procreate, but a homosexual couple cannot procreate themselves. And so that would be one of the arguments that you would make. And I think it's a very valid argument when you look at the scripture. Uh, those needs are not there for spiritual beings. Why? Because the physical doesn't matter. And the spiritual needs are much different than physical needs. Uh, we sometimes get them all intermixed and intermingled because we're humans. That's what we do. I mean, we make things much more complicated and confusing than they have to be. God, on the other hand, has a very clear and concise idea about spiritualness, right? There is a spiritual need for union, union but that spiritual need for union is what? Between the spirit and who? God. God. That's how he tries to elaborate and describe our you know, involvement with regard to the Lord's church and Christ, right? The whole idea of the bride and the groom and that kind of a concept it really kind of resonates with us because of that need spiritually to be unified with God again. And that's what becoming a Christian allows us to be. We are the bride of Christ as his church. And so because of that, we kind of see that. But spiritually speaking... The, the need for a physical marriage is not there. And Jesus indicates that when we arise, when we are resurrected, there will not be marriages. There will not be that need. There will not be that, um, that relationship any longer. Uh, and he compares that to the idea and concept of angels. 
uh, that they are not given in marriage, so therefore we would not be. Angels are immortal. Again, we used the word a minute ago of eternal. Angels are not eternal. I like to think of eternal as no beginning and no end. The arrow that has arrows on both sides, right? Immortal or just like our souls. In fact, we are immortal, not physically speaking, but spiritually speaking. We also are like angels when we were created. Is that we are immortal as well. Not our physical bodies, but our spiritual body. That we are going to be immortal. We will not ever die. Uh, with regard to the, the spiritual sense, uh, we, we, well, I guess you could argue the second death would be going to hell, but I don't want to get into that too much. Um, the idea is that our souls will endure. And so just like the angels, we have no end. You could say our souls are immortal uh, because of no ending. And so you read the scriptures here, and the scriptures indicate the fact that, that angels also are very much like that, that there is no end. Uh, they were created. However, there will be no ending with respect to them and their existence. Uh, Luke chapter 20, verse 36, real quick. <clears throat> For they cannot uh, even, well, let's say this is Jesus. Let's just back up a little bit with regard to, this is the scripture we talked about a moment ago. Uh, talking about the resurrection. Whose wife will this person be? Verse 33 was the question. For all seven had married her. Well, Jesus goes on to answer. Verse 34, he says this. Uh, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, verse 35. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot even die anymore because they are like the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. And so you see there with respect to our comparison again of being like the angels, not just not given in marriage, but we also cannot die, it says, cannot even die anymore. Uh, there in verse 36, the idea that angels uh, do not have an end uh, with respect to their demise or destruction. They do have an end of eternal torment if they have chosen a bad pathway, but we talked about that last lesson. There's an indication in Scripture that angels have the ability to have superior strength. Superior strength. There's multiple Scriptures that talk about this uh, increased ability and an amount of strength. Look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 2. Matthew 28, verse 2. And of course, here's the, uh, the earthquake, and this is after Christ was crucified, laid in the tomb. Verse 28, uh, chapter 28 talks about the, the resurrection there on the Sabbath. Verse 2 says, And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And so you see, well, what does this mean about superior strength? Well, if you look back and you look, uh, around this situation about this stone that had been placed in front of the tomb, the, the concept that is conveyed in the scriptures is that that stone was so heavy that no man could roll it by themselves. Uh, here the scriptures indicate that uh, a, an angel, in fact, did roll that stone away from the tomb with regard to the resurrection. Look at 2 Peter chapter uh, 2, verse 11. 2 Peter 2, 11. We'll start at the end of verse 10. Actually, it says, Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Now, again, I want to dive into Second Peter necessarily in all this. Uh, you can get in a lot of discussion about this section of passage of Scripture. It's a great um, description here of some of the things that were, they were dealing with there in that present age. But 
The point to be made from this, the inspired writing by God says that angelic majesties, these angels, they are greater in might and power uh, than those who are around them. Psalm 103, real quick. This will be the last one I read about the power. But uh, I, think, I think it's very interesting to consider this, the idea that they have more power and more strength than humans. But 103, uh, verse 20 says, there, bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Uh, and so you see there the idea of the commendation, uh, the fact that they are mighty in strength. And again, that doesn't necessarily give the comparableness to humanity. But when you look at the t- sum total of the scriptures, talking about what angels are able to do and what they have done, uh, it indicates that they appear to have superior strength. Uh, Probably, I would say, because of what Psalm 103.20 says. Why do they have superior strength? What must they accomplish? Those things which God has said. They're obeying his word. And so in order to obey his word, there are sometimes in some circumstances and instances where they likely had the need for increased strength versus uh, what humanity would have. Now, there's an indication in scriptures. I don't have the scriptures all written down here. And we're just kind of... Uh, glance over this a little bit, but that they have superior intelligence and superior knowledge than humanity. And I'll say the, the one thing that they definitely have with regard to their intelligence and knowledge is the idea of their realization and knowledge about God that we don't have. We live by faith and not by sight. Guess what? Angels don't do that. Angels don't do that. They know God. They have seen God. They have seen his face. No man has seen his face, right? That's what we talk about in the scriptures. They can't, they can't take it. There will be one time when we're able to see God's face, and that would be after we're with him in heaven. Uh, it says we will see God face to face after the judgment, uh, or maybe even at the judgment, I guess uh, you could say. But angels have the superior knowledge and intelligence to be able to know that. They have other superior knowledge because of their ability, I believe, to look down upon humanity. Uh, there's descriptions in the scripture talking about how they rejoice, right? When a sinner comes forward and a sinner uh, repents and a sinner is saved, those kind of phrases that are used in the New Testament, how the angels in heaven rejoice. Well, if they are able to rejoice and they're not necessarily here with us to be able to see it firsthand, that means they have superior knowledge or intelligence or intellect that maybe we don't have. They have more information than we have. So that means they have superior knowledge and intelligence. And the final point that I want to point out about uh, who the angels are, some of their characteristics, is the fact that there is a clear indication in Scripture that angels, of course, are below deity, but the fact is that they are above humanity when it comes to their placement. And uh, I'm not going to say they're important necessarily, but really they're, they're, uh, I guess there's some total of existence uh, there is kind of recognized as they are greater not necessarily in value, but greater maybe in power uh, because of the strength, because of this intelligence than man uh, and the placement that God has. You see this in Hebrews chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 2. And Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 6, and he talks about this creation here of the, um, of the, of the world. And we'll just start in verse 5. Uh, it says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn of the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And the angels, and of the angels, he says, 
who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire, but of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with oil of gladness above your companions. And you kind of flip over and see in chapter 2, chapter 2 here, after you think about, and again, Hebrews 1 and 2 are really kind of outlining uh, the, the foundation of comparison between the old and the new. And so you look in Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll end with this this morning, verse uh, 7. It says, um, we'll start in verse 6, but one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? For you have made him for a little while lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. And so what you see with respect to the, the uh, creation and the, uh, the characterization of angels here is the fact that there was a creation of angels. When they were created, though, there was some type of a created order in the fact that they were created somewhere above man. When Christ came to this earth, when he gave up what I would say would be his form of deity, uh, that you read about in Philippians chapter 2, it says there, and it's Hebrews 2, verse 7 says, the idea for you made him for a little while lower than the angels. And so the argument would be, of course, there as you think about the, the uh, resurrection and then the ascension of Christ back into the heavens, it talks about him retaking his place at the right hand of God. So therefore, he would reestablish the fact that he was again greater than the angels by being on the right hand of God. Well, I think it's a little deep. Y'all could study on that this week. I'll give you a little bit to chew on. And then we'll pick up here next week.